I hear that you like to sing and karaoke is your thing. What? No, that has to be some joke, really. Who said that? <laughs> I need to know who said that. Oh, I can't possibly reveal my sources, Kelly. <laughs> okay, in, okay. I have to say that in some parties I have done it, but it's I wouldn't say singing is my thing. Welcome to WRC Backstories, our exclusive World Rally Championship podcast presented by Bex Williams. It's time for a fresh new Backstories podcast. Welcome along, everyone. Hope you're keeping well. It's almost the end of another WRC season, one which will go down in history with its youngest ever champion. I can't quite believe, as I say at the end of almost every year, it seems, that we're at the end of the year. There have been some incredible images over the past month or so. Not only stunning action shots on fabulous far-flung New Zealand stages, but also the raw emotion of achieving dreams beautifully captured in moving and still images. Someone once said, a picture is worth a thousand words. Don't tell that to our writers. But in rallying, you get a very brief window to create the perfect picture, the perfect photograph, to tell the story. And we all know there are many stories to tell. From the skill of driving state-of-the-art machinery in rugged landscapes, to the very human side of a sport that can make or break a character, all captured in every weather condition conceivable after trekking many kilometers every day across a rally weekend. That, my friends, is the life of a WRC photographer in a very short slice for you. Today, we're gonna hear from photographer Colin McMaster on a career that has spanned three decades in motorsport. A regular on the championship since the 90s, McMaster has produced jaw-dropping images of a championship that is constantly changing just like the very technology he uses. It's time to focus on a man who spends his life behind the lens, blending into the background so that we can enjoy the unguarded moments that have made up so many great rallying images over the years. I hope you enjoy. It's early evening on a Thursday and who better to speak to right now than someone who is behind the scenes in many ways, but in front of the scenes in many others. Someone who spends his life producing content that we all adore, love and consume on a rally by rally basis, but who we rarely see or rarely hear from himself. Colin McMaster, it is fantastic to see you full screen on my computer right now. I'm used to seeing you in the flesh on WRC events, but I think the world at large doesn't see you often enough. How are you, my friend? Well, first, good evening, Bex. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely relaxed, uh, super happy. I've got the house to myself. I'm at home. The uh, kids and family have gone to Berlin on a sort of cultural language uh, experience. Oh, and- wow. It's me, my dog, and my cat. <laughs> Excellent. And, and, and you some, for company for the uh, next hour. Well, I mean, what better, to be exactly. honest? It's yeah. a cute, what a great evening we've got ahead of us. Um, I know you've been listening to the, the podcast over the, the past couple of seasons, Cole, and it's been a, you know in my mind for a good while to, to talk to you because I remember, gosh, we're going back quite a few years now. 
but we had a wonderful chat. Uh, I think it was Rally Greece, maybe many, many years ago where you talked to me for the radio. We sat down for about 30 minutes. We talked about photography in the WRC and there was so much more to say, but I just couldn't keep you from your job any longer. And since I've been doing these podcasts, it's like, right, I need to sit Colin down and we need to go through everything from the start. Are you ready to share all, bear Absolutely. all? Well, maybe not bear all, but not on the screen anyway, at least. But share uh, no, all. Please, uh, everyone remember, I'm uh, I'm known for my uh, images, not my words. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Well, as ever, and as you well know, we kick off these podcasts by discovering a little bit more about you by asking you to describe yourself. Okay. Well, Normally, I... I say three words, Cole, but you're well up on this, so I'm going to give you four. Well, I've done my homework, you see, Max. <laughs> it's funny, you know, when you listen to these podcasts, so many people come up with similar words like mm. passionate, determined, and you know, you can't get to where we all are in this sport if you're not. So mm. I'd say they're almost givens. But for me, I have thought about this. And I would say creative, dependable, yeah. funster. And I, I'd have to go one of the classics for a photographer, focused. Oh, of course. Got to be focused in more ways than one. Cole, where did it all start for you? Because, you know... With drivers, we, you know, certainly as journalists, we have some kind of background on on where their careers began and, and, and the whys and wherefores. With you, I'm not so sure. So I'm really looking forward to, mm. to hearing the story about a young McMaster and how he discovered the lens. What was the, with the early childlike years for you? Were you, were you always behind a camera with a photographers in your family, for example? Right. Well, let's uh, start from the beginning. I was born into a motorsport family, but two wheels, not four. Mm. And uh, my grandfather was a journalist uh, on motorbikes. And uh, he was eventually, uh, we're an Irish family from Northern Ireland. He was on what's called the FIM, which is the bike equivalent of the FIA as the representative for Northern Ireland. Mm. and uh, wrote for uh, Belfast Telegraph magazines in Ireland. And uh, all, all I remember as a kid at weekends was going to race circuits to watch uh, bikes, cars, whatever. And that was a passion for my father who rode bikes. And uh, he it's just a mad motorsport family. I can remember living in Scotland and we drove down to places like Brands Hatch to watch the Formula One Grand Prix you know, overnight and then uh, back after the race I and mean, they they were really keen so i've been to pretty much every circuit in the uk and south africa because i've lived there following motorsport and it was so it was in the family there was always motorsport magazines around uh which i would uh pick up and read and it was just it i was born into that and, so uh, how come so many different places to to be living ah, what? yeah Sorry. Well, my father worked in the motor trade mm -hmm. and he started off as a car salesman in Northern Ireland wasn't a particularly great place uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, he was quite keen to come over to the mainland and got a chance with Fiat to become a what would you call it? A PR man or sales manager. It mm. was. So he went from Northern Ireland to England quite quickly. He got promoted to be a area salesman for Scotland and that's where I sort of spent most of my formative years up in Scotland 
And then he went over to South Africa in 85 to work for Alfa Romeo and followed him out there. So I can blame my parents for the motorsport and the travel because that was just brought into me from a very, very early age. What an I experience. Knew, really. I bet. But what an experience to, you know, mm. 85. How old would you have been in 1985? I was 15. So I went to school. Yeah. I went there for a year. and It was fantastic because we as a family would go away on the weekends and explore the country. It was either safaris, different cities in South Africa, uh, or we'd go off and look at racing. My, the Alfa Romeo touring car team, my dad was quite involved with. So we went to all these race circuits and where we lived was quite close. It was at the edge of Johannesburg, but quite close to the famous circuit, which was Kyle Army. And back then the Formula One teams would go there to do their winter testing. And I used to spend days and days during the school holidays out at Kyle Army with a camera, with uh, right up by the fences or even past them photographing the guys testing. And the access was just back then was completely unique. You could walk into the pits, you could talk to people. But yeah, as a 15-year-old boy, there's a limit to <laughs> what sort of conversations you might have. But I'd show them the pictures that I'd done the previous day and it, sort of things kind of snowballed from there. I thought, I like this. I want more of it. So what kind of camera did you have back in the day? I mean, are, are we talking a very basic camera or was it a, a gifted camera or a family camera which had a bit more capability, let's say, than your, your average snapper? Uh, my first ever camera was an 11th birthday present, which was a very basic uh, cartridge loading camera which had two shutter speeds only. I think it was a 60th and a 125th of a second. Very limited what you could do. And back in those days, you had something like 12 exposures on this cartridge and you had to post it to be developed. And they'd come back 28 days later. <laughs> That's when you saw your pictures. And uh, then uh, my father bought a camera, quite a good one, actually, uh, almost professional level with a couple of lenses. But mm. God bless him, he didn't know how to use it. So I became the family photographer and uh, <laughs> I loved it. I'd picked it up. So this is great. So in fact, that would have been around the time of being 13, 14. And that was the first camera I used on professional shoots much later. So I kept it for a long time. And just with camera equipment, you tend to be brand loyal and you build up uh, lenses and accessories. And you just, stick, I've stuck with Canon my entire life. And that was a good Canon. It was called the A1. It was a good camera. And uh, so that's basically made me a my dad brought me into the light, into the world, he, uh, my parents basically, and brought me into motorsport and brought me into photography. <laughs> but that's great though, isn't it? You know, those incredible opportunities that have come down from your parents and that kind of chance of, I'm buying a flash camera, I don't quite understand it, let's give it to Junior McMaster, he will learn it, and look what's happened, <laughs> you know, that's quite incredible, that yeah, it, you, it's, you it started it from that. It was exactly that, exactly that. <laughs> so you're taking pictures at the fence of testing from, from quite yeah. a distance, and the, these guys then get to see some of the images, what what happens then? I mean, where do you, where do you, where does the actually I want to kind of do this for a living come from did it did it start then or well, was it much later was this just a I'm quite good at this I'm enjoying this this is a good hobby this all kind of evolved because when I went to South Africa I didn't speak a word of Afrikaans and there was about four or five hours a week of Afrikaans lessons and 
they looked at me and thought there's absolutely no point in him starting that because we have to do the exams next year so we have to skip it but what do we do at school with McMaster for five hours a week and I convinced them to let me build a dark room in the school and uh, do photography so I could walk around take pictures of stuff and well it's all things from the weekend as well develop the films process print so I learned the basics of uh photo production and darkroom skills at school when I was 15. I mean, this sounds quite idyllic. It sounds like a film. <laughs> I feel like I've watched this or I could watch this. I could write this book for you. Speak to me when you, you know, you're, you're heading to do your memoirs. You know, being able, like you say, to convince the teachers that, you know, you're going to build a darkroom. Where else in the world would you be able to do that? Oh, it was just, it was perfect because... The school was quite an old building, and there was a it had sort of turrets and towers, a bit like uh, a mini version of Hogwarts uh, in <laughs> South Africa. And one of these towers actually had uh, plumbing, a sink. It was ideal, no windows. So this was you couldn't wish for a better setup to build a dark room. And I had the key. Once I set it all up, I had the key, which made me instantly popular with all the smokers because <laughs> you. Could, it was the one place no one could come into. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a good way of making friends, I can tell you that. So that was South Africa. I only spent a year there and uh, had to come back to school in England to do what well, you, know, you and I know as O-levels, mm. uh, get onto that curriculum. So when I came back, it was even better because there was more and more racing I could cover. And so I used to... Particularly in the summer, you long summer holidays at school and later university that uh, I would go to racetracks wherever I could and uh, follow the Irish drivers. So there was a lot of good, talented young Irish drivers making their way in the sport. People who, even someone like Eddie Irvine, who went on to drive Ferrari in Formula mm -hmm. One. And I then used my grandfather's contacts through the media to sell pictures from the weekend. Uh, so again, it was very early age, taking pictures and selling them. So, you know, as a little student running around, I could make, you know, small amount of money at the weekend selling photos of racing drivers. Quite the entrepreneur. Uh, it was, <laughs> university was good because it was, you, know, you go away on the Sunday morning, come back and you know that you'd made a little bit of money and you could enjoy yourself during the week spending <laughs> it <laughs> when the checks came in. Remember checks used to get paid in checks in the post yeah so yeah it was uh that was all snowballing around the late 1980s all racing nothing to do with rallying whatsoever but while i was in south africa there was a magazine that was uh, quite visual full of great photos called uh, grand prix international focused mainly around formula one but they also covered rallying mm. and back then was the the group b days and I just looked through the photos in this magazine and used to buy it as a monthly bought it every month and uh, suddenly I thought oh these these rally pictures are quite special <laughs> something really good and you look at the photographer there's a photographer there doing them all called Reinhard Klein so I grew up in the 80s sort of idolizing this guy uh, and thinking one day yeah I'd love to do something like that that would be amazing so racing 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 Got to get into Formula One. That's everyone's objective when you start. You think you work your way up. And uh, I got to meet a lot of other 
photographers at these UK circuits. And mm. one guy in particular said, you should uh, have a word with my boss that is uh, always looking for extra help in the summer. So two summers at university towards the end, I worked for a photo agency, uh, basically in the dark room, covering some small events, a little bit of touring cars, whatever, whatever they'd give me film to go and shoot. And then when I left university, I had a bit of a choice. You see, I did, I was quite, this, you, you always ask people what they, what were they like at school, Bex? You haven't asked me that. I've, I've, I need to get to it. I will when you finish whatever you're about to say. So I, I had quite a choice because I had a degree in engineering. But so where, where does this come from then? You've just talked to me about photography. You've talked about your granddad being a journalist. Yeah. And bing, bang, boosh, all of a sudden you've done a degree in engineering. Well, I was quite the SWAT. I'm not sure it's, very, what? it's not quite an international word. I knew you would be. You were very good at school. Exceptionally good is what he's trying to say. But I, I enjoyed school. You know, it's quite trendy. I, I noticed when a lot of people love to say, oh, I couldn't concentrate in school because I was too busy reading autosport. And I just think, what a load of tosh. It's like, you're there. It's good. I, I love school. I, uh, I like being around other kids. I... I enjoyed it. We play sports. You could do stuff. I really did enjoy school. But my mother was a school teacher, so she kept quite a beady eye on progress. I'm uh, sure she did. Yeah, I can imagine so, you were pretty good at sports in school as well, though. You know, for for those who have not met you, you you're you're very statuesque. You have exceptionally long legs. I mean, you would have been a great hurdler. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Should have tried basketball. Never really tried. Well, basketball. Yeah, you would have been. A I'm sure you would be great at that. Yeah, football, cricket, and squash—they were my games. Uh, but no, so the uh, well, <laughs> school <laughs> school led to university. Mm. Okay, and that was for uh, because of the subjects I'd done at school. Engineering was the was the choice, and I was thinking, well, maybe you could go and work in Formula One as an engineer. That was kind of in the back burner, but. All the time, photography, photography. It was yeah. That was, that was my passion, and that was a little bit more than a hobby, as we sort of previously discussed. So, but you know, to be honest with you, did I think I would make a career out of it at that time? Not really. And things, uh, to use the word snowball, they just did. They literally, I got uh, working in my school, I was university and school holidays, taking pictures got a job at the end of university, uh, working in a dark room. So this would have been about 1992, 91, 92. Uh, and things really, really happened quickly for me from then. In what way did they happen quickly? You see, the, the agency I joined, uh, a little village called Longhamborough, which is ironically three miles from where I live now, but the it was a photo agency with dark rooms, studio, uh, and it was it was called Words and Pictures because they had journalists and photographers in the same building and offered a full pack, PR package. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, and if you know the Oxfordshire area, on the one extreme of Oxfordshire is a place called Banbury, and that's where ProDrive are. Mm -hmm. And the PR girl called Belinda Jellett. Her daily commute would take her past Long Hambro, where our, our office was. And in 1992, they had quite a good rally driver on their books called <laughs> Colin McRae. <laughs> How much so, did you know about Colin McRae at that time? 
ironically, this we're really going back in time here. The one rally my dad took me to was uh, the 1977 Scottish Rally. Blimey, um, we are going back in yeah. time. 1977. Wow. And on the first corner we went, I think it was Drummond Hill, the stage. I wish I could remember. But uh, he ended up leaping off the banking with a lot of other guys to push Jimmy McRae out of a ditch. <laughs> That's a brilliant so, story. So that was the first I knew of the McRae's. And of course, you know, you got through the British media in the early 90s. Colin was the next best thing. He was the you know, the rising star. Mm. But if you knew Colin and I knew Colin, he was quite media shy and or slightly awkward uh, in front of the camera. And ProDrive had a new sponsor, this uh, which is that famous 555 brand mm. in, in Southeast Asia. And they wanted to make him look like international superstar, uh, hero, uh, sportsman, everything they could think of. So they needed photography of Colin. And we just happened to be ideally placed in words and pictures. The, one day there was a knock on the door and Belinda Jellett said, uh, photography, motorsport, uh, can you do something with Colin McRae? <laughs> and next week he was in the studio complete with full makeup. Uh, wow. For, yeah, so I met him in 92. And one thing led to another where they said, right, the events, we need you, we're going to enter the Asia Pacific Rally Championship and some selected WRC events with Colin. And I think at the time it was Ari Vatten and Marco Allen. But the main what focus a, what for a them, lineup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the main focus for ProDrive at that time was to win Asia Pacific. That's where their main sponsors market was. I'm going to stop you there. Just go back to the day that Colin McRae comes in to the studio and has full makeup on and he's in front of the camera. Are you taking those pictures? No, I wasn't ah. because there was a full-time studio photographer. Okay. But you were uh, around, you saw this, you witnessed it. Oh yeah. 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 But you know, my career at the same time was really taking off because a couple of photographers had left, one got sacked and I ended up out of the dark room with you know going to events so I was covering a thing called uh, Formula 3000 which is a European single seater championship and some of the Grand Prix that they went to as well Formula 1 testing and in 1993 I was offered the chance to cover the full Formula 1 season wow which I did for on and off for three and a half years but at the same time, I was also doing things like British touring cars. And then this opportunity with the rallying came and I jumped at that. You see, the issue for me was going back to a boy that wants to travel. You get the opportunity to travel and you go to Formula One eventually. And all you ever saw was the airport, the circuit, the hotel. Repeat that for four days and fly back home. You never saw any of the country. Mm. And it was... I found, I found it a little bit soulless and, and all, oh, I was away for 200 days a year as well doing this and thinking, well, something's got to give. Yeah. It, you've reached your, what you thought was the pinnacle. And when you got there, you didn't really like it. And that's what happened to me that uh, I thought this uh, chance to go and do the rallying was it. And next thing you know, you're doing rallies in Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong to Beijing. Uh, what a journey that was. 
Australia, New Zealand, and being quite green on rallying, I, I arrived, I knew nothing. And suddenly people you talk to say, well, you've got to wrecky the stages to know where to stand. But you what? <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> well, you get in your car and you drive the stages exactly the same as the competitors do. And you look, survey the route and find out where to go. I thought, you, you're joking. So you used to do that. And this was, suddenly you saw the country. And this just blew my mind. This is amazing. I so I basically fell in love with rallying. Uh, it, we were just—it was like a marriage in heaven. You know, it just that was me. And uh, so again, the two hundred days became like three hundred nearly with all the stuff. So something had to give, and I decided that would be uh, the circuit racing. I wanted to do rallying, and uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up going completely freelance and working for Subaru and ProDrive. Uh, wow. I mean, it, but how great that, as you say, for Belinda, just, you know, passing by every day, seeing this place, deciding, right, I'm going to go in, have a chat with these guys, hire them. Then that leads to your massive opportunity to start to see the world yeah, and, and, and discover exactly what you want to do after being, you know, slightly disappointed by the world of Formula One. Yeah, it was. A, it's this travel element that we you, me, and all the people involved in rallying get to experience. And uh, it's hard to imagine any other sport that exposes you to that. Maybe, you know, top, top level cycling, but uh, this, we're on a global championship here, many continents. Mm. And, uh, I get reminded sometimes by others, you know, just, just think of the number of random tracks and roads you've been up and weird places think of the sunrises and the sunsets you've seen because of this sport that otherwise you would never ever see um so that's been quite a privilege uh and bear in mind Bex, i've been doing this for 27 years so yeah i mean it's, it's that's a, just the rallying it's a, it's a it's a long time mm. and it, it that's many sunrises and sunsets and incredible experiences over the years because i think we and you're right to use the word because i feel it privileged you know, we're privileged to travel it and see the things that we see and be in, in, you know, in different countries, see different cultures. Oh, we're going to Japan in a few few weeks. And I've never visited a country which is quite so different to anywhere else than, than Japan is. I and, think, you know, yeah. the, the culture there, the respect everyone has for each other. And, you know, the fact that, you know, being an, an English speaking person in this country is, you know, you can always get by, you can always get around, you can always survive. But everything is just so very, very different. And I love being exposed to that, that kind of thing. We've been very lucky over the years to, to go to very, very different places, whether it be with, with rallying or with, with other sports that have taken us around. Yeah. I, I think as well, what we've both missed here is that yes, you travel and you see things, but it's the people, mm, people yeah. you meet yeah. from, you know, from the most uh, humble, basic, uh, primitive societies where in the morning when they see you they say hello how are you today and they've got absolutely nothing but they're they're interested in you and you're coming dripping with cameras from <laughs> glory western society and these people are welcoming yeah facing and so I think it's the amazing people that we meet along the way uh, just makes the journey even more fantastic yeah, you, I, 
totally feel that is the generosity of spirit of, of people who you randomly meet in in whatever circumstances. Sometimes you can be in a bit of a bad circumstance somewhere around the world. Someone will always help you out. Uh, and that I you know, think some of the best stories we've had in rallying are the more human element stories um, from from over the years gone by. So continue on. You're you're in rallying. You're freelance right now. You are Colin McMaster. Yeah, <laughs> working uh... for ProDrive. And I want to know how happy you were to be in your own skin being freelance because it can be, as a lot of us know, a bit of a difficult world being being freelance. You know how secure you were doing that. Well, my uh, Subaru contract came from Japan, uh, from their parent company in Japan, not from ProDrive. Mm. And I can remember three, four, five Christmases staring at a fax machine, waiting for a confirmation or a contract or anything. So those were stressful times. But, you know, I digress here, but the ProDrive had McRae. And then all of a sudden, very soon afterwards, they had Richard Burns. And again, going back to Belinda, uh, Belinda and Richard were going out together. And uh, the next stroke of good fortune came my way when uh, Belinda said, uh, Richard and I are moving into a house. It's a big house, big barn conversion in the Cotswolds. And uh, would you like to join? Because uh, Richard had, had only ever lived at home with his parents, and this is a big thing for him. So... Uh, Belinda Richard, myself and my girlfriend at the time, we all moved in together. And uh, so the boys would go off traveling because Richard was doing Asia Pacific as well and selected WRC rounds and uh, just formed an instant friendship. So at that time, we had two British rally stars and I was friends with both of them. And the events, they were so different back then to mm. today. We just seemed to have far more social time yes uh i i don't i don't want to be negative or anything about today today is just an amazing sport no question mm. about it incredible but you know the late 1990s even even into the 2000s the teams didn't bring a restaurant they went and ate in yeah. the restaurants in town uh, there was a gravel crew for every round for every driver and they were typically national championship drivers or from you know ex old experienced drivers and we used to go out for dinner it was typical there was no shakedown test there used to be a media day before the rally started so the day before the media day it was, it was a night out in the town and uh, these were amazing days to go you would go to a restaurant typically i think it would be a wednesday or a thursday sometimes the rallies didn't start on a friday they'd start early in the week but uh, you go to a restaurant and there'd be a six, seven different drivers. The co-drivers would be out, uh, media. It was, it was a buzzing atmosphere in the town where you were. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, these, these were great times. And, you know, I still you know, made good friendships with some of the greats in the sport by being out with them. Uh, it is it is lacking, though, isn't it? You're, you're right. And I, I, I think... It, couple of people have talked about this on this podcast so Astian Loeb being one of them because you know he well remembers at the start of his career what it was like to be far more social and actually get to know people a bit better 
because right now drivers are in the car, they're out the car, they're back in the car, and they sometimes don't know any of the media from Adam because they they see them in a in a work environment only, and yeah, um, well, you know yeah. they they don't mix and, and mingle quite quite the way they used to. I want to take you back to to something you you mentioned about Colin McRae coming into the studio that day and him not being the 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 most easiest of people behind a camera. He didn't quite know what to do. He was a bit awkward, you said. How did you, with your friendship with Colin and even more so with Richard, how do you as a photographer bring that out of them? Because when they're in the car and you're taking photographs, that's a very different thing. But when you're trying to convey uh, a, a personality through photographs with someone who does not know how to behave, in front of a lens that's very difficult for that person how how did you begin to to build relationships to bring that character out well this is a brilliant question because Colin and Richard were quite opposite so with Colin if in the pro drive style of things they'd want to have a picture of him in a suit with a hanger in the background with his overalls on sort of classic cliche studio mm. images forget it you know, they, we try, but it's not him. So ProDrive were good, actually. They realized pretty quickly that uh, don't do any of that. We tried it, didn't work. Put him on a jet ski, put him on a ski, uh, skiing in the Alps, stick him on uh, his super bike and uh, get him doing the things that he wants to do. And then the, with Colin, the the limit was endless. In fact, the more extreme, the more he would go for it. And we've all seen the videos and the fo the photos and the fun. And, you know, he was quite the action man. And he loved that. Absolutely loved that. Richard was the total opposite. A little bit because the, the money had dried up with uh, the sponsor. There was no budget for all this for Richard. And he'd seen it. He'd seen what had happened with Colin. He wanted some of that. And we were friends, basically. <laughs> We, we probably copied a lot of those ideas, but I did it for free as a friend and uh, he cashed in, but uh, the friendship was good. So that wasn't a problem. But uh, yeah, Colin, if you could get the, the situation where he didn't know you were there, or well, that's probably a bit of a lie, if you play up to the camera, but just get him doing natural things. Richard wanted to do the natural things, was, but was a bit wooden with it. So he was way more conscious of his image, whereas Colin didn't give a, didn't give a hoop, just got on with it. And so they were actually quite different, but ironically, you know, the end result was pretty much the same. You mm. know? And this great rivalry uh, grew up over those years. The media loved it. And the best thing for me was being friends with both of them. Yeah. And seeing them away from the rallies together or socially, we, we did a bit. And uh, they were actually really good friends. Uh, but the, not, yeah, but no, not a lot of people know that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was quite fortunate to spend a week with them in South Africa. It was uh, Robbie Head's wedding. And I think many people got stories from what happened but they shared they rented a house in quite a nice area called uh, Camps Bay and it became party central it was a nice big house with a swimming pool and every night it was full of people like full of the wedding guests <laughs> and uh, yeah they were in their element these were great times I remember seeing a photograph of yours you talk about you know Colin kind of out, 
acted best when he forgot that you were there. And it was a photo from within the car. So it was him and, and Nikki and, well, you tell the story, but it, I think it's the, I'll describe the image for everyone because it's a classic, which we've seen many, many times. And it's Colin and, Colin and Nikki basically flicking the bird to, yeah. to, to the camera. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people now looking at it will think, oh, that's just naturally an onboard camera because we see them all the time now. But talk to me about that image. No, no, this was, uh, not only was it not an onboard camera, it was shot on a film camera, not a digital camera. And uh, I'd come up with, I've been playing around with these things for a while and uh, ended up doing an awful lot of them and enjoyed them all, that you could mount a camera on a bracket to the roll cage. And uh, one of the first was that shoot in Portugal, I think, uh, Portugal 96. No, Nicky was in the car, so it'd be 97. And uh, the, you used to set the camera, you, you set the camera how you wanted the picture to look, but... In the, with the technology then, you could only trigger it with a remote cable, which Nicky would uh, trigger, and he'd lock it off. So it took a picture every 10 seconds. And there was a, a flash gun as well to light the inside of the car. And uh, pretty quickly, they realized every 10 seconds there was a picture. So it, it was on a test road. They shot down the test road and... Uh, when they turn at the end and come back, they waited a little bit and then counted themselves in knowing those two and then pulled the bird to the camera. And the, the best bit about it was that I knew nothing. Of, they didn't let on at all. And this was shot on film. So say that was a Wednesday. It wasn't until Monday after the rally I saw the pictures. And then I knew why they came back laughing so much. In fact, 10 seconds, the next picture after they pulled the bird, they were still laughing and Colin's completely broad sideways with dust everywhere flying from the side windows. So they, those boys enjoyed themselves. <laughs> and it was funny, I was asked, uh, I think it was Rally XS magazine that said, pick out your 10 favourite pictures. Um, and that was definitely one of mine. Mm. And uh, they, there was 10 favorite pictures of Colin, actually, the story on Colin. And he commented on the pictures and he said, I, that was for McMaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's, a, it's such a great picture because you see the fun side of them, but also, you know, the kind of the story behind it. You know, they're up to some devilment, mm. which was, you know, a kind of a constant with, with, with Colin, really. Talk to me photographically I mean my, my dad was a photographer so I, I have a little bit of insight into photography and I built my own little darkroom similar to yours not in school though they would never let me do that uh, but we, we used to transform a little a room at home like an airing cupboard into a darkroom anyway taking pictures of cars you've, you've done circuit you've done formula one you move to rallying and then you have broader options because you have a car out of situ, essentially. You have a car which is not on a racing circuit. It's in a rally stage. It can be framed by beautiful castles, trees, whatever. How much of an explosion in your mind, creatively and artistically, was that in comparison to what you'd had before? Right, it's massive, absolutely massive. And within the realms of safety, you can pretty much stand wherever you like. And even today, you can put a remote control camera somewhere where you definitely can't stand. So mm. you the, the possibilities are endless. Uh, a very well-known British motorsport photographer, I've taken him on some rallies. He says to me, Colin, 
there's a photo on every corner. And I have that in the back of my mind, think, yeah, he's absolutely right. And it doesn't have to be a spectacular landscape. It doesn't have to be uh, the wildest action, but then you can rely on photographic techniques to inject some sort of speed or life or animation into the pictures. And that's what I like doing. And a lot of that comes from the racing background, having to work in, around circuits and make, you know, circuits look dynamic. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's a technique as opposed to uh, a pure visual landscape or artistic through nature, what's there. And, you know, people ask me a lot, what makes a good photograph? And in relation to rallying, I would say that for me, a good photograph would work without a rally car. And the rally car is the icing on the cake that comes along and just happens to make the picture. Yeah. And in the when I'm wrecking on the stages, that's kind of what I'm looking at first and foremost. Because we can all say, yeah, that's a jump. That's a water splash. That's a dusty corner. You can do all that. That's not, I mean, that's quite straightforward. But, you know, where is the dynamic landscape? Where is, there's another adage as well that the magazine editor once told me, he said, come back from a, a rally with one picture that sums the whole thing up. Blimey. That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? It is a bit of a challenge. And uh, I've absolutely pulled it off couple of times and we can get on to one of those uh, uh, soon but yeah it, it, these are the sort of maxims that are in my head when I'm looking at the stages to think you know does the does the image I'm going to take does that show the country I'm in and will that portray the event to the people looking at the image it's so different photography nowadays to when you were there in the 90s it's so completely different from the sense that you can view the image now you can see it you can edit it on site you can have everything uploaded within hours well back then you're basically setting up shooting fingers crossed as to when it gets developed a week later maybe I mean how quickly was the turnaround in in developing fi film and when did that actually then stop for you and, and turn digital well, this is the whole thing about the time span of my career has gone through film, very early digital and the latest technology we have. And, you know, so I've worked in all different mediums mm. and it's, you know, I, the, with all respect to the younger photographers today, I mean, there are guys on rallying girls that have uh, basically weren't even born yeah. when I was taking professional pictures, but, and they've only known this latest digital uh, era, but back in the day with film, give you an idea, you could take something like 30 rolls of color slide film to a rally, and that was it. So you got 36 exposures, 30 films of 36, that's nearly a thousand, so just over a thousand pictures. Wow. And you've got to make those count. And back, if you probably look at the economics of that as well, it was about, 12 pounds euros but say 20 euros a film per film on today's money I mean, you're looking at you know 600 euros mm -hmm. 
uh, easily per event just on your film costs. Yeah. And now it's a little data card that, you know, <laughs> buy it once and it's, it's, it's done for life. But uh, that was one key thing. And then the other side of that was you did the event at the end of the day when you'd finished taking your pictures and you <laughs> had to be sparing. You couldn't go shooting aimlessly all day long. Uh, you'd go and have a meal. You'd sit down, you'd chill out, you'd meet other people. And then uh, come. It was normally a Sunday night or a Monday morning, I would fly back to Europe, to London. I would uh, drop the films off at a lab. Uh, if it was Sunday night, I'd stay in a hotel. Otherwise, I'd wait for them to be developed and went straight round to the uh, British magazines, uh, which would, you'd sit on a light box, a big table full of light, and your films would be there. And it would either be the art editor, normally the rally editor would come along as well, and they'd choose what was going to go in the magazine. You were actively involved. You were, you'd suggest something, they'd think of something, they'd want something. And uh, then, so that was going on in the early 2000s. And more and more, we would use local labs uh, to process the film. So that became a, you know, mm. the start of this daily process of take your pictures, get them developed, work on them in the evening, and you could scan them in a film scanner and send them on. It was basically a telephone and dial-up modem. <laughs> the quality was quite poor and the time was quite long, but today is just phenomenal where those thousand pictures on film thousand images you can shoot that on one stage quite easily you could have a remote camera you've got two thousand from a stage you've got to edit that and lo and behold we've got 18 hour days because you spend the evening on a laptop and well yeah you're, you're glued to your little screen during the day actually through your viewfinder looking at the images and then you know it's the biggest screen in the evening actually mm. going through everything and picking out what's best so it kind of begs the question which era was better for you I I would love to shop the well, I wasn't around for Group B, but the Group A era with today's cameras, what we could have done <laughs> would have been fantastic. And without the internet, so you didn't have to fill that up every night. So that would have been ideal for me. Um, yeah, so you could go and have a nice meal there. at the end of every day without having yeah. the work ethic. You yeah, know, of, of staying up. Yeah, unwind yeah. exactly. I think uh, Greece this year. Uh, we did the we did the recce, did a shakedown, and then a, so the start was in Athens. Yeah. And then yeah. there was a, a day where they basically rallied from the Peloponnese up, uh, ran from Corinth all the way back up to Lamia. It was two 18-hour working days in a row. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not it, this this uh, rally photography today is not to be sniffed at. It's quite a job. Yeah, I mean, if people are thinking, and I, I think, you know, I, I'm sure people don't, but there are some people out there who will think it, it's a glamorous job. You get to travel the world, and yes, you do, absolutely. But it is grueling for you guys. You know, I hear all kinds of stories of how far you've walked in the day, doesn't matter the weather condition. Oh, marshals won't let us park there. That's an extra two kilometers into the point we want to be. Completely rain soaked, windswept, off to another stage. And, you know, factor in that it is an 18-hour day. Yeah, It's not well, a lot there, of glamour in that. <laughs> there can't be many jobs in the world where the police actively stop you going to work in the morning. 
And that happens quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, jobs some, some are scarier to, than others, though, right? Some yeah, have jo guns. <laughs> jobs where you have to negotiate your way to work <laughs> on a daily basis. And, you know, the, the office car park's full, so you can park two kilometres away and walk, walk to your desk. I mean, if you... This just isn't the life of a rally photographer. You've got... Uh, I'll tell you what I do love, though. I absolutely oh. love it. It's, it's going back to the recce thing, but... We quite we're so privileged now. We can drive the stages either 120 or 90 minutes before the. So I can drive a stage two hours before Callie Robin Perry drives it. I, I love that. I absolutely love that to find some unique location. Yeah. Yeah. So we call that being locked in. There's a big disadvantage. You have to wait for every car to go by, and then a sweeper car. And if it's a gravel rally, you've got to negotiate all the rocks they've pulled out to get out of the place. But it's quite unique. And I, I, I do say to my mates down the pub, it's the equivalent of having a five aside at Wembley before the FA Cup final. You know, you, you can do it. <laughs> I dare to ask you how many punctures you've had over the years then trying to get out of rally stages. It's uh, <laughs> it's not the number of punctures. It's when you get two. That's, <laughs> I love I've had that. Uh, oh, that's it. You're you're into restart mode for the next day. Then that's it. Game over. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I've I've had it a couple of times, and once was uh, on the safari rally, uh, and uh, I had two punches, and I had uh, Richard Burns's father and some of his friends following us, and they had one. And this was at night. This was in the morning, not at night. This was going to the first stage, trying to get a sunrise, and we worked out a way of. Uh, getting enough getting the two off mine into Burnsy's dad's rental car and put the spare on his and they drove off to find a puncture repair place and I just slept in the car and I woke up the sun had risen and my car was surrounded by locals <laughs> and I love it you know I, I don't have an issue with it but you know when they're like noses up to the glass <laughs> <laughs> wondering if you're dead or not probably lying yeah. in sleeping in your car yeah i was quite pleased to see alex burns come back with fresh <laughs> inflated rubber <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about richard burns then because as you said you were huge friends and I, I love how that friendship started you know it's shacking up in a in a barn with your, your respective partners and and sharing this this huge house and then traveling the world together and and that I can imagine was a you know a really bonding time because yeah, you're it, in each other's pockets he was the ideal best mate because he, he didn't drink when I met him so he had a lift back from the pub no problem whatsoever and but that soon changed unfortunately and uh, so I taught him how to socialize and, uh, <laughs> uh, and then you had to get a taxi <laughs> yeah. but he he was a hopeless chef he couldn't cook at all so, and I quite like cooking. So uh, that was probably the payback there. But it was ironic because we were more or less on the similar program the whole time. So Asia Pacific and then world championship, he got his break with Mitsubishi to do the whole championship, similar sort of time I was doing it. And uh, so we'd always travel together. And the kind of the beauty of it was as well that, you know, as best mates and friends, we, that was all the, away from the rallies. When we got mm -hmm. to the rallies, it was just a job. But, you know, we, we knew each other so well. Uh, we could always have a quiet five, ten minutes somewhere and have a chit-chat and 
catch up and yeah, it was all it was good times and uh uh yeah I, I miss him like mad think about him every day and uh, yeah. even when you know he when he became Burns the multi-millionaire he looked after me nicely and uh, always a, there was always a spare bed in his uh houses he had around the world and Andorra went to Andorra a few times uh and yeah we stayed really close he had his base in the UK it was always close to where I was uh, would always catch up he was a very uh generous guy as well not uh people didn't really see that but uh, uh it was the season ended with the rac back then or rally mm. gb he would always get his mates around for a dinner and he'd take like hire out the local pub get the food and everything that was these were really nice times and i remember the year 2000 where he came close to winning the championship didn't quite work out and uh you know, he stood up and said a few words, and then his gravel crew, Simon Davison, said, in classic Geordie, said, "Never mind, son. <laughs> <laughs> it might happen next year." And of course, it did. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's. What was big... that event like for you? Two thousand and one Wales, <sighs> they win the championship, and you know, there was been you know, a fantastic season. But it was all on Wales. How did yeah. you feel for him at that well, point? People say it was all on Wales, and it absolutely was at the end. But the the rally before actually was quite something where, in a, it was Australia, mm. and uh, it was a time when uh, Colin, being Colin, failed to turn up for a start order position draw down at the Super Stage at Langley Park, and. Instead of choosing to run, would have been 12th, 14th on the road, they made him run first on the road. And that just got his goat up. And uh, he lost a lot of points to Richard there. And uh, I remember talking to Nicky Grist at Heathrow Airport when we came back. He said, don't worry, Cole. Uh, McRae's going to go for it in Wales. And the whole build-up was great. You, know, you were part of that then. Mm. And, uh, it was you know, media frenzy. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. Yeah, I wanted Richard to win the championship, but in a way, as a, on a human level, I had a, I had a, you know, best thoughts for both of them and, and I, you know, two irons in the fire, really, you know. But uh, I was close to Richard's family, his girlfriend at the time. And, well, <laughs> went out. <laughs> Great. Got a special symbol, he batters the cat flap to get out. <laughs> Well, <laughs> at least you know what he wants, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was a special event. Uh, we There was so much media attention on it, and it was the Battle of the Brits and everything. But it is a, I, I was disappointed when it fizzled out on the first day, to be honest with you. Mm. I wanted it to go down to the wire. But when it went down to the wire, Margham Park, and Margham Park has so many emotions for me as, as a stage. And quite happy to tell you the, the varied ones there but uh yeah that was special it was one of those occasions where when he crossed the line and stopped at the stop control it was kind of bedlam with his family and media when he got out of the car it was one of those rare occasions in life where your job is to record the madness not take part what do you do you want to give your mate a big hug you know he's achieved his lifetime ambition 
and that's definitely one of the times in my career where I've really not known what to do. But I think I look back on the pictures, I think I did it justice. Um, yeah. But I got my hug as well. So, <laughs> well, as long as you got that in, that's yeah. important. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, you know, there's a classic image of, of Richard in your arms. And that was a year later yeah. in Kenya when he got stuck in the fesh fesh in the well, get heading into the service area at the time. And when I look at that image, for me, it's just, it always pulls on my heartstrings, always, because he looks so broken. And yeah. there you are, his, you know, and many people think, oh, he's, you know, he's hugging a photographer, not knowing that, you know, he's hugging his best mate because he's tried his damnedest to dig his car out of the fesh fesh and he can go no further and he's just fallen into your arms. That must have been because you're recording that like you say you're taking pictures of what's happening and there must have been part of you that's like i want to get a shovel and help my friend here yeah th there's a bit more to that because i kind of arrived late on the scene that i knew i was covering the stage before but quite privileged because i was doing it with a helicopter and we knew that he damaged the front left uh, suspension wheel whatever and throughout the course of the rally the entrance to that service park it, it's basically a volcanic uh, crater mm. where it was and the surface was breaking up and breaking up and there was quite a bump and a dip for the rally cars to take in there deep deep fesh fesh and uh, so we'd come off the stage followed him on the road section a little bit because there were sparks flying off the front left and landed by the time we'd done all that the digging had it ended the rally was over and there was Mecha the mechanics were by the fence and I remember walking towards the car and he was walking away and he, he was in tears and it was a case of he felt failure and all I could say to him is look you've won this rally three times you know you don't have to prove anything you just were damn unlucky you know don't have don't feel a failure and you know, it's, and that was that you know it was uh Soon changed about six hours later when we're out in Nairobi. <laughs> Having a good old time. So I've still got to work. He said, no, Cole, you've got to come out. You've got to come out. <laughs> and you see, that's what I love about, I guess, the times back then. It was just very different. You know, drivers now will probably be on a plane and, and home yeah. at the end of the day. Whereas back then it was, oh, let's make the, the most of a bad situation. Let, you know, let, let's hit the bar. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we need a little bit more of that. I think we need everyone to relax a little bit more on the championship now. Yeah, it, it's hard to describe to people. You know, unfortunately, I've followed it for so long that the workloads just ramped up. It's particularly the co-drivers. You look mm. at what they do, and they, at the end of every day of recce, they rewrite the notes. Then they have to check it on the video. They haven't made a mistake. Drivers are looking at their recce videos with the co-driver reading the notes i mean it's relentless for the co-drivers the amount of work they have to do and then once they finish the recce the drivers have to do these pr interviews for us for the media uh, and then at the back of their mind they're thinking about the event you guys are asking them questions about stages sometimes you're asking them about the next rally mm. or previews and what have you it's this relentless workload and i i, I say you know I, i'm just the photographer 
but the drivers it's even more intense but I, I do say to people you know it's from the moment I finish the recce more or less till Sunday night I don't have a minute to put my feet up and just chill because you normally close the laptop and go to bed yeah and I can't imagine what it's like for them and to give you an example I we all love Taka Takamoto Katsuta we love him yeah and I work for Toyota and uh, I was in their service area working on the last rally in Spain and it, he uh, I think his road position whatever he wasn't in the top three he didn't have to do meet the crews he didn't he was he was ready for the hotel uh for the other drivers and he was quite anxious to get to the hotel and it's the first time i've seen him not stressed but you know how polite and uh yeah the japanese are it's the first time i've seen him well mini lose it he just wanted to go just wanted to get out there get his rest because it was an early start for them on sunday this was saturday night uh, so yeah it, it's it's a tough job it is I think it's got way more intense over the years as you say the workload has has gone up quite significantly and that that in a way is all due to technology because they have access to onboard yeah. footage immediately whereas they never did before plus as you know civilization we consume much more now so we produce more coverage because there's more consumption so it's all like a vicious circle really um you talked we talked about briefly there richard the fesh fesh you talked about tacker you must have had some incredible eyewitness scenarios over the years you know seen a lot of things most of which you would have photographed what stands out in your mind? This is outside of the car now. Mm. Things that you would have witnessed. Oof, Frankie, the I think it's... Uh, I'll take someone like Carlos. Carlos Sainz. He's quite a... He's, I love him to bits. And our relationship has grown over the years. Because I remember getting the call from ProDrive. It would have been, I think, at the end of 93... Yeah, end of 93. Can you come to ProDrive, please, and take a picture of the car? And I, I got there and I was ushered into a small area of the workshop and there was this Subaru, but it had Repsol livery on it. And I thought, well, I'll take a picture of the car, no problem. And then a door opened and out came Carlos and Luis. <laughs> so, blimey, do they live here? <laughs> so they'd signed for Subaru. And they wanted the full photo. They hadn't properly briefed me or anything. I wanted everything doing with these two drivers and everything. And Carlos didn't know me. I didn't know him and everything. I was just one of those starstruck moments in awe. And it didn't go that well, Bex, I'll be honest with you. And the first couple of rallies with Carlos, he was difficult with me. Why? I think a little bit like he was... Almost the senior statesman then, and I was the whippers. I was the youngest photographer at that time. I'm the, I'm the oldest now, more or less, but back then I was the youngest. And uh, so it was a real hard relationship on, I wouldn't say off the rallies, we didn't do much off the rallies, but there was nothing. There was I found him quite hard work. And then as, his, as I got more experience and everything, we got to know each other a little bit. And Lewis Moyer helped a lot because he was such a character. He still yeah. You know, it's like good cop, bad cop. And Louise helped me a lot with the relationship <laughs> with Carlos. And now, today, I do the extreme E 
electric off-road uh, championship. And, uh, you know, Carlos is brilliant. And he, he'll, come, he'll come to me and say, hey, Colin, how are you? And he's genuinely uh, interested. And, uh, yeah, you see what his son's doing in F1. You know, he's obviously a proud father. And, mm. uh, you know, our relationship's really grown over the years. And I, I like that. So. But how it, is many different examples again going back to the brits you know there was colin richard but there was also alistair mccray mm -hmm. you know and that was i got on so well with alistair today as always did uh yeah it's it's a, it's hard to make good friendships today outside of the working environment we're in the guys are way more private they're way more busy with the testing schedules they have uh, but yeah, occasionally you make really good friends. One of them uh, you've had on a podcast, Seb Marshall, good friend. I do like this Robin Perra, Blake Pernak, Calais Robin Perra. <laughs> How is he only 22? I know. He's quite unusual though, isn't he? You know, he, I don't think we've ever really seen anyone like him in the championship before. Um, <laughs> A, of course, yes, he's young. He's super focused, but he's very, he's very open with the fact that there's more to life than rallying. You know, his family are extremely important. He doesn't shy away from that. Yeah. And, you know, we see him hugging his, his mom, his dad regularly when, when they're there. You know, he, he told me on the podcast that he was on that, you know, he likes to, you know, he doesn't think about rallying when he goes home. He's getting up to all kinds of different things mm. with, with his friends. And he's very different, I say, I would think, to, to the others that we've had who are can be a little bit tunnel vision. And this is everything, whereas this isn't everything for him. Yeah. It, it, he's loving it. He's enjoying it. But there's more to life. Oh, it's totally. And, you know, I work for Toyota today and uh, they have, you'll see it in the service area, Toyota Gazoo Racing. And then underneath the sort of strap line, the PR line is pushing the limits for better. Mm. And on the stages, he does. Absolutely does. And he's got that whole team right behind him. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of Finns in there anyway that want to see him. And obviously the boss, Yerry Matty, is right behind him as well. But mm. he's gelled that whole team in a quite a unique way. Not it's in a nice way. It's in a positive, uh, here I am. I'll do my best when I put the helmet on, I'll do my best for you. And he does, he delivers. But he's just he gives everyone a fist pump before he gets in the car. He's social, he's relaxed totally relaxed open friendly I just that must make kid. your job so easy though when someone is just relaxed and unaware of what's going on around them for you as a photographer and as you say you are you know Toyota's uh, photographer so you are in there all the time I'm sure the drivers are just your you know they don't even consider you now in periphery vision they're so used to you how much does that help you when they've zoned out of you let's say they're not so self-aware anymore well Calais is unique because he will ask me something start a conversation and I do a lot of uh, not road sections but stage starts where the drivers prepare themselves and they've all got their little routines and what they do it's great to, to be yeah. part of this to stop and see all this Calais wants to chat Okay. He, yeah, and, and I actually quite like it when with the majority of drivers don't know you're there. They just get on with what they're doing. I like that. 
Mm. Just photograph it. I don't want them posed. I don't want to look at the book. <laughs> so shut up. I want to take pictures. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask Calais to do anything, for you, I need to do a picture like this. I want to do, try this. He'll do it. Absolutely do it. And then he want to look at the back of the camera and say, oh, yeah, that's cool. So he's absolutely fantastic to work with. Brilliant kid. Who have you come up against over the years that's been the most difficult to work with? Oh, you, you're trying to make me go down a negative here. Most <laughs> no, not, not at all. But it's a question I am asked frequently. It's probably oh, yeah. the most popular question I'm asked. Oh, Who's God. the most difficult person to interview over the years? Oh, God, yeah. Some of them are still in the sport bags. It'd be tricky. Yeah. <laughs> well, we need we need to do what this 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 oh, podcast God. in in about ten years maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> what can I say? It's oh dear me. Trying to go back in my mind now and think. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is difficult. Uh, gosh, where would you go with this? Uh, I'll tell you. I'll do it a little bit different and say that okay. well, I've personally struggled with, but I like them and get on with them. I always found Marcus Gronholm a bit tricky when yeah. he was driving. I never made a great connection with Marcus until he stopped. Yes, and I, I see him. Same. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, you know. Like, and there's a Swedish photographer who I worked with for many, many years. You know him, T Tony Whelan. Mm -hmm. He was super close with Marcus. So if anything needed to be done with Marcus, Tony would go and do it. So yeah, I, I never really made a great connection with him. Uh, I'd love to have uh, had a connection with Jill Panizzi. Those eyes to photograph. But I never really got to, to know him, you know. Oh, I'll tell you who. I'll tell you who. Because I tried to get hold of him recently for a Monte Carlo book. Francois Delacour. Was difficult. Never. Ne we were like two magnets. You know when you try and push north <laughs> north together, they just don't want to join. <laughs> but the ironic thing is, I would chat and get on with. And I saw quite recently his wife, Priscilla de Belloy. Mm. Uh, yeah, we, that's a nice relationship there. Very good. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> Delacour wasn't the easiest. Uh, it's a Gallic shrug and not, if you asked for anything. I, that's what I, that was my experience. And, you know, have you found over the years that you've had to ask drivers, because, well, you know, when we look at your pictures, everything looks so natural. But have you then generated these poses or you've asked them to look a certain way or or whatever because it all looks completely natural other than okay you know the obviously stage shots that you would see kind of studio type photography well I'll, I'll be totally honest that I struggle to be in control of a situation you, you know to set something up to control it completely yeah I, I, that's I'd rather capture what I see naturally mm. and that yeah. goes back to this I'd rather they didn't think I was there or I'd rather be invisible. Yeah. And then, you know, bide my time on that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, in the back of my mind, I'm still trying to think of drivers, but I promise it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, has has ever, anyone ever brought you up on any picture you've ever taken? Of yes. Oh. Yes. Who? And they're both currently in the sports and I was completely unaware of this, but, uh, but when it became, remember blogs, it became quite a popular thing to do a blog or something. And I stupidly went down that road. Of, you know, here's, here's 20 pictures and my take on the event and everything. 
Right. I used to enjoy those. And I remember taking, I, I love Yari Mati Latvala to bits. Okay. Absolutely phenomenal gentleman. Uh, complete guru of the sport, fantastic driver. Wish he could have been world champion. He would have been amazing. I agree. Uh, and but the thing with Yari, he's got certain mannerisms when he when he's in the zone. So his warm up routine, for instance, or mm. when something doesn't go quite right, you know, he he wears his heart on his sleeve. The first time I met Yari was helping him out of a ditch on uh, Tour de Course. He slid off on a stubble. Yes, I remember that. He kind of yeah, hit he, the, banged, yeah. he banged his wrist or something, you know. And they're like, blimey, this is a nice guy. And uh, so I really like Yari Matty, but he's the one guy I think I've taken the worst pictures of in my life, just through the expressions he came out. And I, I took one of him, I think he's, things weren't going well at the end of the uh, Volkswagen time. And uh, I have one of those pictures of you know his, his head in his hands, you know, looking really down. And I used that in a blog. And on the next rally, it was in Wales. Mm. Uh, and one of these uh, getting ready sections, Thierry Neville came to me and said, uh, I wouldn't be happy if you used a picture of me like that. <gasps> wow. Okay. And I I agree actually. And I so it was not a clever thing to do and Thierry's right uh, but part of my thinking with the blog was go the opposite direction of the PR angle on everything shouldn't all be show it naturally as it is not polished present you know I didn't need to do that there's plenty of other people uh, representing these guys that will do that uh, but uh, blogs that's ancient history now for me <laughs> What were you burned by that? Well, you can only do wrong in a way, you know, you could, uh, and it's just not worth it. Absolutely it's, not worth it. It's because you're putting yourself out there, you know, that as yeah. soon as you expose yourself and put down any opinions or, you know, mm. put the photographs up, someone is always going to voice an opinion, whether it could be good or bad. Yeah. So but did Yari Matty actually say anything to you? No, about not, it nothing at all. But I would have to respect Thierry on this because point number one, uh, he actually read the blog. <laughs> 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 and, uh, point number two, he, you know, it was in his head, so he talked about it. And this was would have been like a couple of weeks later. Yeah. So fair play to him, you know. It's, uh... You said two drivers. Yeah. Who's the next? Oh, I can't. I can't. Oh come on! He's you can't currently tease out of con- like this. He's currently out of contract and a world champion. I think you could guess from that. Come on, you can tell us. No, it's, uh, there's nothing to gain. <laughs> but there's, surely there's nothing to lose either. If he's Probably out of contract. Not. Probably not. <laughs> oh, we might not see him again. I'm sure we will see him again. I'm pretty sure we will see him again. Yeah. Well, you're, you're using your professional investigative journalist techniques here on resisting. <laughs> I'll break you. Don't worry. The I, I, thing is, he's the kind of character the Estonian that you're referencing, who would want this story to be told? Uh, would he? Yes, absolutely. You know, he doesn't He doesn't he hide behind any kind of charade or... He he likes things direct out there in the yeah, open. Okay. Yeah, well, no he's rubbish. Really difficult to photograph, I'll put it that way. <laughs> well, when you've got sometimes one pose and it's quite a scary one, then yes... <laughs> 
I he's mean, given it, some stage end reporters some hard times over the years. Yeah, well. he has. I mean, I've got to be honest. I, I've always liked Oit. I've yeah. thoroughly enjoyed interviewing him because he presents to me one of the biggest challenges in the service park. You know, he will tell you black is white just because he's being stubborn. Yeah. Um, but you can trick him in in you know w- certain ways, and he will say, "Ah, oh, always with the clever questions," and yeah. you know, you know, you've got to keep hammering away at him. But he presents a real challenge. But I love his character. I like his. I like his honesty. I like his directness. I like that there's no crap with him. Um, yeah. But you know, I've you know, if if you can't say what you said, I went. I was part of his Oitanak the movie, and I called, I, him a, I called him a serial killer in that. Eyes of a serial killer. He still talks to me. Yeah, so, I think as well that in certainly the early days that uh, in interviews when you watched them, humour, being humorous, that's a difficult genre to pull off. Yes. And in your second language. Yeah. Even more so. And then if you're talking about using, you know, advanced humour, which he does, like pathos, irony, sarcasm, or whatever they are, you've got to have the audience behind you, you know, to make it work. And there was a couple of times I heard things he said, thought, hmm, that's not really... Sometimes you can go too far. I I will be honest with you. Sometimes I I listen to a stage young clip and think, oh, come on, there's no need to be like that. There's no need to to be quite so demeaning to someone who's asking you a question, they're doing the job. Yeah. Um, and they have no idea what's going on in the stage. None of our stage end reporters, you know, here have a, a real crystal clear feed of commentary in their ears. The cars turn up, they're really loud. They can barely hear what someone's saying to them. And then, and then you get a huge amount of sarcasm back or an eye roll as one of our <laughs> reporters got this year from, from Mr. Tanak. So given that yeah, I've said all of that. Also, uh, if you go to these, uh, what are they? They're Wednesday evening media. Yes. Hours. All the teams host the media for 45 minutes and uh, it's like a Q&A session with the journalists. And uh, I photograph those and I hear the drivers being asked the same questions over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I said to yeah. Elfin Evans, uh, do you get bored? <laughs> the same questions all the time. And you know, typical Elfie. He said, "Yes, yeah." One word answer, and uh, you have to see it from their point of view. It's, uh... No, totally. I and I agree, but I will give you a retort on that, which is, I once sat at a table with Sebastian Loeb when he won Rally Norway, which would have been yeah. two thousand and nine. Yeah. I think he won it the second time, didn't he? Um, and he was interviewed by seventeen. I counted them: seventeen yeah. journalists all from different nationalities, and they all asked him exactly the same questions. And one of them even asked him, what did he think Rally Finland would be like in the snow? To which I mean, he couldn't give an answer because he'd only ever done it in gravel. But time and time again, with every single journalist, he was as fresh as he was with the first. He knew this. Mm-hmm. He, they know the score. It is going to be yeah. very similar questions. There is only a limited amount of things you can ask. And if you, you know, kind of veer onto a difficult territory, then they'll shut down. <laughs> yeah. How do but, you feel? Um, now I'm interviewing you, but I, this has changed oh, around. Hold yeah. on. <laughs> but all this speculation about contracts and mm. who goes where. I mean, people love it, don't they? And it extends to social media speculation. Uh, postulating about who's going to drive for who and I think 
crikey, if someone asked me about my career and where I was going and what am I doing, I think I'd be quite annoyed about it. Or, you know, it's their, it's their livelihood. It's their, what they Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And, yeah, uh, I, but I think we we kind of we, we get it on, yeah we get it on a, a smaller sense I guess because for some of us and you mentioned you know waiting for your facts to come through from Subaru every year, you know you don't know sometimes what you're going to be doing at the end of the year. But we spooked Elvin Evans last week because it was so when we were in Spain so much talk about driver movement and and even though Toyota have not announced a full lineup you know, we, we were just double checking, you know, how, how many years is your contract? Because they only announce a Toyota year by year, even if the driver has a longer contract. And uh, Elvin had been asked by about six people. And then I went up to him and said, oh, so yeah, yeah you've got a two year contract, haven't you? And he went, everyone's asking me about my contract. Should I be worried? <laughs> Why is everyone asking about me? I was like, don't worry, we're asking everyone. It's not just you, but he was genuinely like, mm. I think I should, do I need to be worried? <laughs> I don't think so, but I, I think they can get spooked. But the situation we're at right now, which is we've just come off the back of Spain, we're ahead of the final round, and it, you know everything has just gone up in the air because Tanak has announced he's he's leaving Hyundai at the end of the season, which I think is a surprise to some and, and not a surprise to others. There's so much chat, there's so much to discuss, and I love that element of it all how do you convey all of that drama in photography it's funny because i've got some pictures of uh, different drivers and this is again this same zone that i keep referring to stage uh, preparation before they start a stage mm. and you, the drivers love to go up to the other cars and see the tire wear that they have yeah. what tires they've got uh, and it's a sort of cat and mouse thing of course you know, no one would stop anyone from doing it and they do have, they have these little casual chats, but their mind's on the next stage. And oh, I've got some good ones of drivers staring into other cars. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I see it and I think, yeah, I'll put that aside to when he <laughs> is talking to them or signing for them. You've got the shot, you know. Okay. So there's a little bit of that going on. And uh, yeah, Oit's very good at uh, walking down the line of cars and, uh, you know, one, two words with the drivers and he's studying their tires, where and. Mm. Uh, yeah, sussing it all out. So yeah, he's quite good for that. So which photograph did he not like that you took then? Oh yes. Yeah. Probably all of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there hasn't been a specific moment with him over the years, or has there been? No. Have you not got really. a bit too close for comfort at all or not? No, no. Because he's all. very private, isn't he? Yeah, totally. And he's got a he's got a great PR man. I get on with very well, uh, uh, Henry Rump. And uh yeah, he, it's in fairness to Oid, right, and I'll, I'll say this, that he's one of the few drivers that's ever given me anything. I didn't ask for it, but I got a pair of sunglasses when he became world champion. <laughs> the whole team did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so fair play to Oid. He, uh, he was generous on that occasion, definitely. Uh, but I, I, here, here's one for you. Here's one okay. for you. Okay. Right? Bracing myself. Rally Finland, can't remember the year. It might have been his first or second year at Toyota. I took a picture of Oit at the end of the day in the service area, uh, giving his wife a hug. Right. And I just thought it was a fantastic picture. So I put it on the computer and everything. And I said, Oit, I've got this picture for you. I think you should have it. And I, th I think you should frame it, stick it on your mantelpiece. And you know what he said? And I think my, his wife was with him at the time. He said, we don't like pictures when he's in his overalls. <laughs> 
<laughs> I won't be bothering again. <laughs> yeah, so, so, save your digital image for someone else, maybe. <laughs> um, Colt, we've we've talked about a lot about you know the highs of everything and and the great relationships that you you've had over the years. Talk to me about the tough times behind that the lens. Is... The the tough times within the sport for you. Uh, there's there's been a few. You know, there's uh, back in the day for about three years, I was fortunate to travel with the helicopter that uh, it was the TV helicopter where they filmed from the air. And the back seats were available, and myself and a, quite a well-known cameraman at the time, Kevin Bernal, Todd. Mm. So we did all the rallies together in the back of that. And uh, it was primarily for using it as a tax, filming from the air and a taxi for the camera crew and me as the stills. But if somebody retired, we would fly to the retirement zone or it was a crash or something. And do an. I would hold the microphone, and Kevin would film. We'd do an interview, and there was back in those days there was a lot of retirements, a lot, and you didn't really know what you were flying to Mm. until you got there. It would be a case somebody's gone off, and uh, yeah, I saw some things that were not particularly nice in the course of that. Uh, Got to know the drivers quite well in a bad situation, but. there was one, it was Rally New Zealand 2002, where Richard Burns crashed and uh, had to fly off to the uh, the scene. But I'd gone to a different location to Kevin, taking my pictures and where he was filming, so they didn't have time to pick me up. Thankfully for me, not for them, but uh, they were doing the interview with Richard, what happened, you know, why'd you crash? And the Group N car crashed at exactly the same spot. And they it was the uh, film operator, Bart, who still films today. And Kevin ended up in a hospital in Auckland uh, that overnight. And that was a Saturday of that rally. On the next day, our good friend David Stanford, standby, came with me in the helicopter. Uh, he basically took the place of Taj. There was an empty seat at the front where Bart normally sat. And uh, on the second or third stage on that Sunday, it was Carlos who crashed. But he didn't crash. He slid wide, very, very wide. And he hit David. And I can remember seeing David cartwheeling through the air about 20 meters and landing in a heap. And, you know, we're good friends and we talk about it occasionally. And uh, even the helicopter pilot who's with us, I saw him again in New Zealand this year. I thought David was dead. Yeah. And I'd done enough sort of first aid experience to, you know, put him in the recovery position, check for a pulse, and then he came round quite quickly. And the stage was, they kept the stage running. And I, I did have a radio. I was trying to radio them, you've got to get an ambulance in here. We ended up, uh, they did get one in, but through an access road. And I think David spent 12 weeks in hospital in Auckland. He had a lot of injuries. And, uh, Again, through Extreme E, the last couple of years, David's been filming Extreme E. And Carlos always, always makes a point of coming yeah. on and talking about it and seeing how he is and uh, how's the leg, all these sorts of things. But uh, that was quite a grim time to go on a rally and lose three of your uh, colleagues ending up in hospital. Yeah. And 
uh, talk about Margham Park earlier on, and uh, you know where this is going, but the, uh, in 1998, I borrowed a car off one of Richard's mates to do a recce. And not many, I haven't told many people this full story, but the, I was, you could only drive those forest stages at the same time as the competitors when it was, it was their private forest roads. I drove towards the, the end of that stage and there were two hairpins and the, all main drivers had been through and they pulled out a lot of rocks. I ran over one of the rocks and damaged the underneath of the car. I didn't really know how bad it was. Then I drove to where Margan Park House is, stopped the car to look at the angle. Thought this is fantastic, brilliant. Got to come here on the event. Got back to the car and all the, all the oil was gushing out from under the engine. So I basically hold the sump in the engine on somebody else's car. So I limped it to the end of the stage where ProDrive stuck it on a trailer and uh, took it up to Cornwall, Oxford, a station near Oxford. And uh, Mark Higgins uh, took me on a tow rope back to leave it at my house and I just found another car to use for the rally. So I'd stopped in exactly the same space to the meter where Carlos stopped on 98 RAC. Blimey. You know, and uh, that if that was life imitating art or history repeating itself, you know, it was exactly the same. And uh, that's one of my all time greatest. You know, I said about take a picture that sums up an event. Mm. I mean, Tommy Mackinnon was a world champion and Reinhard had pictures of him being stopped by the police on a road section. But this image of Carlos with Louise throwing the crash helmet into the back window and Carlos kicking the car in these images summed up exactly the event. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, any time you, you see them pop up, you know exactly where it is. You know exactly the year. You know exactly the circumstance. They're so famous. Yeah, and then, so that's 98, 2001 we've talked about. 2003, another really good friend of ours, Peter Solberg, Plenty the championship and those scenes there. Working for Subaru at the time, it was just phenomenal. So Margan Park, Margan Park, and then what happened in 2005 with Beef. And uh, yeah, that was just the, the worst situation possible. Because again, with the helicopter, we flew to the scene. But you, you, didn't, you didn't know at the time, because we, we didn't go close to the car. We were a couple of hundred meters away in your case crash yeah. into a tree but uh, yeah that was probably the lowest point of my career when we flew back to Swansea Flindra service and uh, somebody as soon as we landed um, have you heard the news obviously the news got out what had happened to poor old beef it you know even now you know to think that it's oh, 17 years ago I know I I, you know, I think we can all remember it crystal clearly for for you know horrible reasons because it was it was devastating he was he was our friend and you know he chatting to him at just you know the the service before and and then never chatting to him again yeah it, he was it, a great guy and, uh, he, he was and he was do you know what he was such a character and for me he was the person I could go to and ask the stupid questions about rallying that I didn't quite understand. Why are you doing this? Why, you know, why is this section? And he would just, you know, tell me and he would never be condescending at all. 
he would explain things perfectly so that, you know, in my brain, because I, I started my full time career in 2002 and, you know, he was then my my go to guy. I loved interviewing him. We'd have great chats. He's he he had such this brilliant way of describing rallying, but also making Marco that little bit lighter because Marco was quite a serious character, Marco Martin, and he was quite difficult to interview. So you always kind of <laughs> headed towards beef because he would tell you the fun stories about what had happened in the stage. And there's so many videos of him, isn't there? You know, the reading the pace notes, Robert Reed-esque and asking about the football scores. And it, it was great. It was a lightness. And mm. yeah, it was a horrible, horrible time. But the memories we all have of him are, mm. you know, quite incredible. Yeah, I do think the, on a positive, the improvements the FIA have done on the car. Absolutely. Following that and, you know, it's continuing all the time with these latest generation cars, how relative the safety cell they have. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal, the improvements in car safety Mm. And if you do really, really consider what we do as a sport, you know, let's just be thankful that there's been so few fatal accidents. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's tribute to these designers and FIA safety people that it is where it is. You mentioned the word tribute. and We have to talk about Richard and your incredible friendship, as you, you've talked about here. And I, I know there's so much more to talk about with him. Um, but when unfortunately we lost Richard as well, I know that was such a, a tough time for you because you were continuing to work on the championship and you were our communication point back to finding out what was happening with Richard. How many times you would get asked on on event how Richard was doing? You were the kind of the you know you were the little radio, yeah. <laughs> Richard radio back then because we would all be coming to you. That must have been you know, quite heavy on your shoulders to be so concerned about what's happening with your friend and, but also keeping everyone up to date with what was going yeah, on. I can remember the rally he didn't start, again, Wales. And uh, you mentioned Marco Martin. Marco was in the car yes. driving down before the recce when uh, Richard blacked out. And uh, the next day, he rang me to say that, you know, I've had some tests there's something inside me that shouldn't be there. Uh, and I was flabbergasted how quickly he went downhill. Mm. You know, go to see him and then, you know, you, you lose functionality, speech, movement. And, uh, you know, he he absolutely threw everything out trying to beat this brain tumour. You couldn't imagine. You know, he had great support around him and people helping, particularly Robert Reed, the yeah. co-driver. Now if I vice president for sport or uh so you know everything you could possibly imagine but it was just to see someone so young fading away so quickly and i even remember going back to beef when uh the rally after after that rally going to see richard and telling him and he knew of course but he's just it was a, when he still could speak he said poor beef you know that was yeah. And, you know, it's uh, yeah, that 2005 was quite a year. Uh, mm. uh, now we basically lost some greats. And it was uh, a journalist, uh, DKW, Deke, David Williams, he died that year as well. Uh, so, yeah, that was quite somber times. 
it was a somber time uh but what kind of rose out of it then the you know the richard burns foundation as it was then all the work that went into that and you're a big part of that i remember fondly seeing you know a, a sea of people wearing orange t-shirts at wales rally gb and it it felt like a positive came out of a negative as much as it could do at, at that point what you know what was the idea behind all of that at the beginning and did you feel you know because it was you alongside richard alongside zoe did you feel that you needed to to have something uh it's a good question because when the seed was planted i mean it's quite a common thing when somebody of relative notoriety dies that people set up a fund in their name for another cause and uh, that's basically what happened and uh, it was also quite it was it was a nice thing for a charity to get 10 or so trustees oh, we we're all unpaid and we just gave up some time to organize some events uh, charity you know, fundraisers mm. uh, and uh, in 10 years we raised a million pounds and thought you know we should sounds crazy but you have this money and you it's difficult to know what to do with it yeah how best to spend it you can go down the road of lots of little uh charitable cases and causes and you know noble note uh worthy justifications of saying we'll put some money into that we'll do that but we decided to here we found a girl called natalie mcgloin who uh she's in a wheelchair uh races uh Porsche Carrera, uh, she's quite an accomplished racing driver, mm. but she was running a thing called Spinal Track where uh, people with uh, disabilities, handicapped, whatever, they adapted two cars to go and race on circuits as a charitable cause. And you could go to Silvers, you put your name on a list and when your name comes up, you can go and drive an adapted car around Silverstone. But thought, wouldn't it be great to extend that to rallying? And get a couple of rally cars and that was the ideal thing we thought yeah let's go for this it's like a wake a make a wish foundation yeah. uh, and it was 10 years we, and you know we were always for donations ending up with the same people mm. uh, making these donations so we thought we've done it we've done it now we've, yeah. we've achieved what we need to achieve uh, and yeah it was proud to have been involved Tell you one name we haven't explored within this podcast so far. You've mentioned him, Reinhard Klein. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> we we best get to that, Mister yeah. Mister haven't we? We talked about your, you know, your waiting for the fax machine, your Subaru contract. You're still freelance at this point in time, and you've, you know, you've had this dream of working for Reinhard Klein or working with him. When did the collaboration and McLean? mold together well he's just a legend <laughs> right why not so he would just he started in the late 70s uh, he loves to tell the stories about hitchhiking from cologne to monte carlo rally with 10 pounds in his pocket which he did uh, yeah. did, did right. he have a little stick and a uh you know yeah. a gingham bag on his back <laughs> yeah so and rally sweden that's another good one the early late 70s rally sweden in a volkswagen beetle uh driven up from germany which was also his hotel mm. 
and a Volkswagen Beetle doesn't have a heater. <laughs> <laughs> so he did it the right way from the bottom up. And uh, when I met him, it was 95. Yeah. Uh, and he was working for Toyota. I was working for Subaru. And there was a third guy, you know, very well, Bob McCaffrey, who was doing work for Ford and UK magazines. And it was exactly the time when this digital photographic revolution was beginning. So suddenly people needed pictures every day. Or yeah. If you could provide that in addition to the post-event slide production for marketing, whatever, if you could provide daily news coverage. And Bob was an expert at this. So it was actually, you know, Bob came up with the idea, why don't we team up, make an agency? And we talked about it in 96. And at the end of 96, we all met in Cologne and formalized the company. Uh, and uh, Monte Carlo 97 was our first event. Uh, and that... Unbeknown to us when we were talking about it was Toyota got into a little bit of trouble with the FIA at the end of 96. <laughs> I and, seem to remember that, even yeah. though I wasn't working in it. Yeah. I know the stories. So they, for 1997, there were these new world rally cars. It was all exciting, but basically only Subaru built one at the time. Ford adapted a Group A car. And suddenly Reinhardt didn't have a team anymore. However, there were two people at TTE that were given contracts. I think George Donaldson was one, unless he was full-time staff, but Reinhardt was given a contract for 97 because there were privateers in Salikas on events to mm. cover all that. So the, our first event, Monte Carlo, typical client says, I've booked the hotel. Oh, brilliant. It was the Beach Plaza. He didn't book it. Toyota put them on the, they booked a room in the <laughs> hotel and uh, get to get to the hotel and open, hang on a minute. He, he came from Germany with his son to photograph the rally. He was about, at the time, 15. There's four of us. In one room. In one room. <laughs> uh, with two single beds. And he said, oh, no, don't worry, don't worry. He said, we've, because uh, we've driven down. We brought some air mattresses and sleeping bags. And if you remember Bob, he did like a bit of a party, Bob. Yes, yeah. So in these days, there was no shakedown. There was uh, rec drivers did their recce. And then there was this sort of day off social or media thing. And then you started the rally. So at the end of the recce, Bob and I went out uh, into the town, met a few people. We didn't come home, Bex. We were dirty stopouts. <laughs> and I remember sneaking in on the, the morning, it would have been Thursday morning, <laughs> into the Beach Plaza Hotel, opening the door, and Klein and his son are asleep on the floor with two unslept beds. No. <laughs> One of the most expensive hotels in Monaco, they've slept on the floor. <laughs> and that was like... Day one of McClime. But well, yeah, we, we moved onwards and upwards. <laughs> Got two rooms normally after that. And yeah, it's a bit so more civilized. It, yeah. And it's the relationship I have with Reinhardt is great. It's uh, we are, it's just the pair of us now that run the business. We've got mm -hmm. some staff in uh, Germany, which is where the, the HQ is. Uh, but, you know, we, we talk 
randomly. Reinhardt doesn't come to the events anymore. He's be occasionally he'll do Safari or Monte Carlo, but uh, the relationship is so strong. Uh, we first and foremost we're just best friends now. And, yeah. Uh, he does his thing and I do mine. I mean, it's so much more now though than as what it was back then, which was you know combining forces to become this incredible agency, take these photos, get them in magazines, bada bing, bada boom. Now there are books. Yeah. Many, many books. There are calendars every year. The business has grown. It's it's taken a life of its of its own. Was that out of necessity to do that to keep expanding, or a real desire to to show off the work more? Because you know, there's once a rally is done and the images are, are taken, where do they go? Exactly, and we have these images, and in fact, we've bought archives from other photographers we have all these great things and it, this is Reinhardt's passion the books uh, the calendars he was doing since the late 70s I think 81 was the first rally calendar that okay kept going it's evolved into something they weren't that big. big then though no were they? they weren't, they weren't that <laughs> the big wider then. view is it's fairly yeah. wide <laughs> so that uh, no, was also his passion to make a wide panoramic calendar which also required a special tooling to make a box to fit the thing in uh, but no he's he's a man driven by passion and for him look you know using the old photographs uh for books that motivates him and quite often i'll i'll get an email i'll look at the time it's like two o'clock in the morning and he's been working and uh, he's you know he's a hard worker on what he wants to do and I keep saying to him, you've got to, you know, stop that. And in the winter in Cologne, go to Ibiza for two months or something, and, you know, get in the sunshine. Um, none of us are getting any younger, Bex. No, this is true. It would be nice if that would happen, but none of us are mm. Benjamin Button, unfortunately. <laughs> what do you see, Cole? Because, you, you know, you've reached the upper echelons of your career, you know, that you are at the top of what you do. You're the top of your game. Everyone knows your name when it comes to rallying photography. Are you satisfied with that now? Or is there more you want to do? Oh, I, I, totally. I think uh, I still try to explore new angles or techniques or experiment, but I quite like photography to be natural. And I don't want to spend my time changing something on the computer because instagram demands it i'd rather shoot what or how i see something and try and make it as natural as possible bad weather fog should be shown as fog not brightened up into a sunset which you can do on a computer not really into that uh and I, it's you know what can i say i've done quite a few rallies uh yeah how many have you counted never counted uh, never counted but uh, I know because we talked about it earlier but I know I did roughly the same as Richard and he did a hundred uh, WRC rallies and but his last one was 2003 yeah so I, had on, I, I think it would be about 325 something like that yeah maybe a little bit more than that well Julian Porter's just celebrated 300 Okay, so he's counting. In Spain. He's, of course, he's counting. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't counted mine either, to be honest. Um, yeah. But yeah, maybe you're heading towards the 350 mark, actually. But you know, Mads Osberg, 
told me something once when we talk, we were talking exactly this. And he said, it's not the number of rallies you've done. Think of the number of days on the rallies you've done. No. So <laughs> if you, then I thought, yeah, okay. So if you say you're away for seven days on average, mm. you know, long hauls can take a bit longer, short hauls maybe not so much, but say each one's a week. And if you've done over 300, you know, that's six years of your life. Just on the, just it's not on okay. No, do you know what? I don't mind that so much. It's when people say to me, "How many hours on planes have you done?" Yeah, that's, that's when I get a little bit resentful and and think I haven't got my Dorothy, you know, golden, well, not golden, red ruby slippers. I can just click them and we can appear in every country. We have to spend the time on the aircraft, and there's that's kind of nothing time, isn't it? That's it's... I've watched a few movies and overthought my lifetime on a plane and people who know me well know that i don't like flying i don't like the whole experience of the queues at the airports and the security oh tell me who does yeah of course but you know something that and we've never really talked about this but you and i were on a flight once going to luxembourg that got hit by lightning Yes, correct. Yeah, and that, that was one of the times in my life. Where I think the pilot just wanted to get to Luxembourg. It's a short flight and it went straight through a storm mm. rather than fly around it. And I can remember you were up, you were a few seats ahead of me on the, the side that got hit and everything went bright purple. <laughs> Yes. Might, it was it, an early flight. You might have been asleep, but we definitely. No, it, it was. I remember the purple color and I remember thinking. You know, out of all the trips I've ever taken, please don't let it be a London to Luxembourg flight, <laughs> which is not even an hour that, you know, that goes wrong for us. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, no one really likes the whole security queuing malarkey. Final questions. How much would you say, if at all, because you mentioned it there with Instagram, how much social media has changed what you do or changed uh, how you do I, it? Yeah, I... Basically, you've adopted all these social media platforms. Like, um, you know, there's different ones serve different purposes. And when Instagram came out, it was very much about images, photography, even their little icon logo. It's a colourful camera. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like, Is that the dog trying to get back? Yeah, in? I'm going to let him out. Oh no, he still wants to go out. Oh, bless yeah. him. Call him at Master's Dog. We don't know what dog it is, but we'll find out when he comes back. He's a bit like his owner. He's an Irish terrier. Ah, so there we go. <laughs> the uh, It was Ken Block who uh, once... I had. I, he asked me for a photo to have printed and put on his wall in his gym. It was Colin McRae. You probably know it. Uh, Bunnings in Australia. Oh, yes. Matthew jumped sideways. He wanted that for his motivation room. And <laughs> uh, he had it... Printed, put on it. I saw him at one of these rally cross events. He said, hey, I've got to show you something. Uh, here it is. And he showed me the photo of the gym with the picture on it. He said, uh, I'll link you with your Instagram account. And I said, uh, I haven't got one. He said, you what? And he said, no, I haven't, I haven't got an Instagram account. He said, right, because he has a PR media team with him. He said, right, you, you, sort him out, get him on Instagram. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then uh, I've always liked Twitter. I was quite an early adopter in Twitter. I, I quite like the, as a news element, what's going on. And, uh, but it's become a bit toxic, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. I agree. It can keyboard be. warriors paradise, uh, trying to avoid getting sucked into that. Uh, and Instagram's changed, changed a lot. It's gone more towards video. So 
oldies like me who do stills are kind of uh, the algorithms are not in our favor i'm afraid there. oh this is true this is true no you need mm. to create the reels which i did try a bit of earlier this year but yeah i i, I have a love hate relationship with social media in that i enjoy it and it's fun i never take it seriously and if I was trying to promote myself on it, I'd be failing massively right now. Some of my colleagues have got it, you know, spot on. They know what they're doing. Whereas I, I'll f see something funny and think, right, that's going on Instagram. Um, rather than, you know, promote what I do as a, as a living, as a job. I just couldn't do that. Um, how much do you think photography is going to change in the next few years? Oh, crikey. It's, it's changed so much. And for many years, a lot of us have said, oh, uh, TV or video, the resolution will get so strong that it will be made redundant. It'll just grab stills from video. And it's never happened. We, we talked mm. about it for 10 years now. So that's a little bit surprising. With They're up to, what, 8K or something uh, resolution on uh, video cameras or TV yeah. cameras. But no, it's there's still something about creating, not creating an image, but taking a photograph specifically as a still the capturing that moment and uh that that's quite an art still and video is not quite the same because they're following something as a, a moving scene so there are distinct differences yeah uh, long may it continue long may it continue so you talked about the fact that many people over the years have asked you what's your favorite image that you have created I know we're we're a talkie. We're a talkie. You can't see right now. Yeah, exactly. But at least we can hopefully use your image to accompany this podcast. What yeah. is your favorite image? Well, I, I wouldn't want to go back and talk about what we just did, but we've mentioned two of them. Okay. Uh, McCray in car and Carlos and Luis at Margan Park. There was uh, something quite special for me after uh, Kenya uh, Safari Rally. It's my favorite. And, uh, the 2000 edition of uh, that year, uh, there was a, a stage where it was running uh, west-east. And if you, it would just so happen that with the dust trails and the sun setting, uh, get yourself in the right place at the right time to see it and pull that one off. And that's quite an iconic image of it. Uh, the Subaru with the sunset behind and I'd have to say you know like uh, Enzo Ferrari used to say when I asked what's your best car and he'd say the next one but something more modern yeah this year in Safari if you consider the year before Calais Calais Rovenpera got stuck in Fesh Fesh yeah uh, 2021 and he had to drive First car on the road on the Friday in Kenya this year on the Kadong stage, which was absolutely full of fesh fesh towards the end. Mm. Hey, we're talking uh, a meter deep. Yeah. And he knew what had happened the year before. And uh, I got myself to a really good spot which was in the meter deep fesh fesh. Stood on top of uh, my friend's Land Cruiser, Jeff Mays. So a little bit of a hype to it. And he just went for it and got through it. And it was kind of, the, the image is fantastic. Absolutely love the image. But it's also the background story that you knew what was going on in his mind, that mm. starting that stage, knowing what was coming. Yeah. What happened the year before. To me, that's quite a powerful image that you've 
got through. I wish I wish I could show everyone now what, what it is. <laughs> oh, anyway, on to win the rally. So there's the, another <laughs> maxim. You've cut, you've got one image that sums up the event. Yeah. Well, yeah, which he said, which was always, you know, that was what you were tasked with. Find mm. one image which sums up a whole event. Finally, talk to me about family, because your family have had to deal with you being away for a hell of a long time um, during the years. How much have they adapted to what you do? You know, it's people that come to my house first time, they'll say, anyone that knows what I do would say, there's not one single thing here that could tell what you do. I don't have any rally pictures. I don't have any memorabilia in the house. That's all in my office, which is separate, but uh, it's quite, so I, I'm quite determined to keep them separate. Mm -hmm. And I've, you've met them and you know of them because I talk yes. about them, but I've got an 18 year old daughter and a 15 year old son. And they could have, gone down the photography route if they wanted to or pick they never take a picture and my daughter's she's loves art that's her passion and nothing to do with photography taking my boy Arthur to some events you know giving him a camera but there's no inclination for him to follow in my footsteps and then you know so at that age you go back uh I don't know, 12 years, these are tough times. You're going to leave home and you've got two little kids behind. And uh, But I can't use the excuse that drivers use when they pull out and stop. They say, well, I want to spend more time with the family. And the boat sails. They look after themselves now. But there, there's no, they're not motorsport people at all. Yeah. And we don't talk about it. But that's a good contrast though, isn't it? Because yeah. I think, you know, to, to come home and to be completely separate and to, to get on with life and then... It's it's like two lives, but running at the same, along mm. side by side, but very much separate. And there's so many people that do that. And to be honest with you, when I go out with my friends locally, and you sit down, it might be play football, go to the pub. I They all ask the same thing. They say, where are you going next? Mm. And I think, I'm here. I've just been, you know, it's, they want to know, but I don't. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about them the here and now and being the here and now that, you know, travel's just been part of my life for nearly 30 years. And it's nice to have a, a base, a home. And uh, yeah, I do try to keep them a bit separate. One of the funniest things that ever happened to me family wise was when my niece was very, very young. She's about four or five. And they had a bit of a kind of show and tell at school about, you know, what your family did. And, and she was telling everyone that, um, you know, I worked in rally. And she managed to tell her whole class that I was a world rally champion. <laughs> so <laughs> the children of Merthyr Tidville now believe that they have a female world rally champion alive and present. I think the teacher, you know, kind of corrected her and got her straight. But yeah, she was very excited coming home from school to tell me that she told all her friends that I was a world rally champion, <laughs> which is great. Colin, I've loved talking to you and we could keep going for like another hour here, I feel, or maybe two, because there's so many different things I want to know about it, the photography on event and your relationships with people. But, you know, you've, you've got a glass of gin and tonic there you need to drink. You probably need to have some dinner. Me topping up. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I'm really hoping that, you know, because I, ever since I've come into the championship, you've been there. 
Yeah. Um, McCline has been there and, and these these photographs, which I always like looking at after the event. And I, I'll take pains to go through and, and look at the images because, you know, for years doing doing the radio, I've been sat in service area, not, not seeing anything. And now I get to see everything through all life, but very much through the driver's eye line. And it's so refreshing then to see all these incredible pictures of the landscapes that we're in and the beautiful places that we we go to in the world. And you're telling, the photographers are telling, in some ways, a very different story to what we're telling on television because you're you're telling the sporting element, but you're also telling this this lifestyle element as well, this geographical discovery of, of different places. And it's a real art and it's a real talent to be able to, to like you say, you know, have this incredible picture and, and your car is just the cherry on the top because you make it sound really easy to create these beautiful images. It, it isn't. So thank you very much. Well, you know, people, that famous saying is that do a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Mm, so true. I'm not going to lie, it's, it is hard work. But <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it is. I wouldn't, From if I look at my career now, and I'll, I'll be realistic, I'm <laughs> towards the end of this, I wouldn't change a thing. And the fact that it's given me the life I have and uh, the income I've made and uh, the people I've met and the places I've seen absolutely wouldn't change a single thing. That's great to hear. And I think that's great to end on, absolutely. I mean, you made friends for life around the world. And I think that's probably one of the absolute joys of this job is the friendships we've made everywhere. And you can call on those people anytime, <laughs> anytime of day or night, regardless of time zone. And you know that they will be there for you. And that is the, the absolute cherry on the top of our cake. Thank you very much, Colin McMaster, for sharing your journey. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. For more great World Rally Championship content, head to WRC+. Plus its thousands of hours of archive footage and exclusive live programming, event review shows and extensive onboards, special features too on some of the legends of the sport. This is all available at wrcplus.com, the digital online home of the World Rally Championship.